and that's Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. This morning as we pray, I just want to, I just want to remind you that uh, um, our pastor is uh, going to school, and um, this week has been a brutal week of getting homework stuff done and assignments in, so just lift him up this morning um, as we pray together before he preaches God's word to us, uh, just that he will preach the message with boldness um, and, uh, and rest and trust in the work that God is doing in him uh, and through him this morning as he brings God's words. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for my friend. Lord, I thank you for the way that you um, have equipped him this morning, specifically this morning, uh, for this message. Um, God, I pray that you will just help him to um, rest in your word, um, trust uh, the time that he has been able to spend this week in preparing this message for us. Um, and God, just, uh, just be bold um, and be courageous in the words that he needs to say to us. Uh, God, I know that uh, physically he's tired. Uh, it's been a long weekend of, of just lots of book reviews and assignments turned in and, and everything else that, that goes on in the life of being a father, a husband, um, and a pastor of our church. So God, just, uh, just help him to um, sense your strength this morning as he brings this word to us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this is it. The thought just hit me. I think a couple of weeks ago I said something to the effect, you know, we're about ready to get to the meat of the sermon. Like, basically, if you're just good with the meat of the sermon, like, you know, we'll see you guys in June. And apparently a lot of people took me up on that offer. So if you look around, it's like, ooh, man, the numbers are down. Apparently, apparently people are good with the issue, of, the issue of anger. And so for those of you blessed people who are, I'm just going to assume that you're here because you have issues with anger. So bless your heart. Um, we, will, we will turn our attention um, to the sermon this morning. I mean... So if you, uh, my, my hope is this, is that whenever we go through any sort of preaching series, is that the first time you lay eyes on the preaching text is not Sunday morning. My hope is that throughout the week, what you're doing is you're marinating in the word that we're going to be learning. That you, you meditate upon the scripture that we're going to, to study when we come on any given Sunday morning. It is one of the ways that we as worshipers of God can steward the the disciplines of God of Bible reading steward our hearts well by preparing our minds to come to worship, not seeing the scriptures the first time whenever it's read on Sunday morning, but just chewing and swimming in the stream of God's word throughout the week. And if you've been doing this, you'll notice something very, very important. Jesus has laid out everything that he's wanted to say in a preparatory manner. He's, he's gotten his introduction out of the way. And what he's going to do now is he's just going to ratchet it up. Jesus is going to step into our lives and Jesus is going to start turning over the stones of our lives because he loves us and he cares for us. 
We've said this, that the Sermon on the Mount, in its essence, is this. It is a good news proclamation. It is Jesus proclaiming the gospel, the good news. And he's, he's issuing this proclamation. He's laying it out. It's a manifesto of sorts where he's showing how people transformed by grace, how people who have had their lives completely dumped on its head by the unmerited favor of God, how they are to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus in the present, in the here and now. Jesus is calling people to himself. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything has funneled itself down to Jesus. The king is here. The Messiah has come. The good news of the gospel is present in manifest form before these people. And so Jesus, with great joy in his heart, has drawn up into the hillside, has sat down. The disciples have drawn close to Christ. And Christ is opening his mouth and he is teaching them. He is calling a people to himself. And he is, he is showing them what does it look like like as a Christ follower to live a life that looks like Jesus. Jesus has defined the character of a kingdom citizen. That's the whole point of the Beatitudes. What he's talking about there in those first nine verses is what does it look like to be a Christ follower? How does a a disciple think? What are the qualities? What are the characteristics that define a true Christ follower? They're people who are broken over their sin. They're people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're people who, who are pure in heart, people who, who are peacekeepers, people who, who seek to see Jesus made famous, people who are even potentially persecuted because they look like Jesus and talk like Jesus and think like Jesus. Jesus moved on and Describe the results of the kingdom living. He, he wants his disciples to know when, when grace transforms you, it molds you and begins to shape you to look like me, to talk like me and to think like me. And in light of this reality, Jesus says there, there are going to be results to living this way. You don't live like Jesus and get off scot-free. To live like Jesus and to think like Jesus and to speak like Jesus means this, that you might be persecuted. People are going to look at you. They're going to see you, but instead of seeing you, they're going to look beyond your skin and they're going to see Christ in you and it's going to make them very, very upset. And one of the results of kingdom living is that you might be persecuted. But one of the guaranteed results is this, is that you should be salt and you should be light. And the way that you are salt and light in this earth, the good thing is that your good works, there is a great potential that your good works will give glory to your Father. And when people see Christ in you, they're going to come asking, what is it that makes you so different? I look at you and I don't just see your skin, I'll see your features, I'll see, I'll see your person. I see something deeper. I see Christ in you. And it's going to stir some to give glory to God. And Jesus moves on to what we saw last week in verses 17 through 20 where where he says this, that the Old Testament is good. The Old Testament is authoritative. The Old Testament finds its fulfillment in me. 
And he calls his disciples to the high requirements of kingdom living. And and all those first 19 verses seem with one big swell to be moving toward this big guiding principle that he gives us in verse 20 where Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it was meant to be a statement that was delivered with some shock and awe because it was meant to grab those disciples, to grab the crowd that was eavesdropping in on everything that Jesus was teaching. It was meant to grab them by the lapels and sort of wake them up to help them to see that your life in the kingdom is not reliant upon you. You need something outside of you. You need the very rightness that Christ has with the Father applied from him to you. That is your only hope of salvation. But Jesus is not even content to leave with that because the Sermon on the Mount doesn't end with that. He turns and he's going to go through the rest of chapter 5, the rest of chapter 6, and all through chapter 7 with that guiding principle. And he's going to start with the skill of a surgeon to start working into your life going, listen, you have heard it said, but I'm going to say to you, there is a way that the Bible has been interpreted to you that is not cutting the mustard. It's not doing the trick. There is a way to be externally righteous by just merely doing certain external acts. But Jesus is not a Christ who's concerned merely with external acts. He is a heart issue Christ. He loves the heart. He's going to deal with the heart. And the first thing he does is he's going to walk through the door of the Old Testament commandment, the sixth commandment out of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, he's going to walk right through the door of that commandment, you shall not murder, and he's going to show us what it looks like to relate to one another and how our relationships function and how our relationships are destroyed when anger and contempt rule and have our way, has its way inside our hearts. So from our text this morning, we're going to see two very distinct things that Jesus is going to present to us. Jesus is going to, in verses 21 and 22, he's going to show us the heart attitude behind murder. He's going to go and he's going to affirm the Old Testament commandment. You shall not murder. But he's not going to leave it alone. He's going to to give the true interpretation. He's going to talk to them on what does it look like? What's the heart attitude behind murder? And what in the world does that have to do with you as a kingdom citizen, as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? And then in verses 23 through 26, Jesus is going to apply the truths that he gives us in those first two verses. Jesus is going to make the connection between anger and relationships. So he's going to show us the attitude behind murder, and then he's going to show us the connection between anger and relationships. And he's going to do it all out of great love for his disciples, because he's going to teach them that it's not merely enough to be externally righteous in our actions But that true righteousness, righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee is actually found at the level of the heart. 
I just need to say this this morning as just a, a quick side, side note. You're going to hear me say that a lot, that this is a heart issue or we're getting at the level of the heart. And that's, that's biblical language. There's a category of biblical language there where when you think about the heart, the Bible thinks about it in this way. It's not just that, that organ, that muscle that pumps blood in our body. When you hear the Bible talk about the heart, what it's talking about is the, the very seat of emotions, the, the place where your motivations are, are rooted, the the place where, where sin resides if you're not born again. The place where Jesus comes and he, he completely renews it so that now your desires and your motivations are completely made different. It's that battleground. It's that place where you wrestle with, am I going to follow the flesh and follow sin? Or am I going to be led by the Spirit and go, and go after Christ? And what you're going to see is Jesus do this, is that when you see the Bible talk about the heart... It's almost always a one-way street where it's this. Your heart is stony. Your heart is dead because of sin. And what you need is a new heart. God comes, awakens you, makes your heart new. And in the light of your heart being made new, then we go forward in obedience with external action. So what's this? Dead heart needs to be made a new heart. New heart with great joy and in the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit then goes forward with external action showing that your heart has actually been made new by God. So it's God makes heart new. Newness of heart leads to actions, obedience, joyful obedience showing that our heart has actually been made new by God. And the temptation, and Jesus is going to touch on this this morning, the temptation for the disciples, the temptation for the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day, the temptation for you and I is this, is somehow we sever the link between the motivations of the heart and the external actions that are good and right that are to come out of the heart. And what we do is we come and we sever the connection between the heart and external, joyful, gospel-filled obedience. And what we do is we start to not worry so much about the realm of the heart. The heart shrivels and dies, but then we keep up this realm of external action. And Jesus says there is great danger when you come to the point to where your life is marked by doing all the external things rightly, but the motivations of your heart are completely nowhere near anything it ought to be. There is no joy-filled, gospel-fueled rightness of heart that's leading to it. It's just become mere external religiosity, religious action. Jesus is going to go this route. I mean, I don't want to pull, the, pull my punches too early, but that's the, whole, that's the whole point why Jesus is going through murder. He's going to, he's going to go and he's going to talk and say, listen, you, you just thought the command you shall not murder is just this. If you're on your deathbed, 80 years old, and someone goes, have you ever killed anybody? You could say, no, I've never killed anybody, external action. But for 80 years, you've just been smoldering, white, hot, angry. Just bitter. Bitter, angry vitriolic, vile, poisonous, angry, insulting people for 80 years of your life. Jesus is going to make the connection. Who gives a rip about you never killing anybody? You've murdered people in your heart over and over and over again. You can stand before God having made the claim, well, God, I've never killed anybody in 80 years. And God's going to go, but did you ever murder anybody in your heart because you were angry with them? Because you've insulted them, because you've attacked their intelligence, you've attacked their mind, you've attacked their character, you've attacked their heart. 
And if you answer yes to that question, then Jesus is going to go on that judgment day, then I don't know you. Jesus cares about the heart. And he's going to dive at the heart. He wants his disciples to see that these things, kingdom citizens, are heart-transformed people, transformed by the beauty of Christ. So let's look at verses 21 and 22. What you're going to see here is this, that Jesus is going to drive at, drive at the heart attitude behind murder. So in verse 21 and 22, Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said to those of old, Old Testament commandment, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the way Jesus introduces his topic on anger is presented in a formula that he's going to use all throughout the rest of Matthew chapter 5. He's going to say this, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And what he's doing here is this. He's not coming to the Old Testament and saying, remember that Old Testament junk that Moses was talking about? He doesn't pull out the the Old Testament portion of his Bible, be like, ah, baloney, light it on fire and throw out the window. Be like, listen, have I got something new for you? He's not doing that. He is completely in alignment with everything that the Old Testament says. We saw that last week. It is good, it is authoritative, and it finds its fulfillment in Christ. But what Jesus is doing is this. He is upholding goodness, authority, and the fulfillment of God's word, but now he is supplying the true interpretation of what should have been understood from the first time God delivered this. So when it says, you have heard that it was said, what is the it there in that sentence? The it is this, that interpretation that you've been receiving from rabbi upon rabbi upon teacher upon teacher. And these interpretations of the law have come down for the centuries. And here's Jesus, first century, sitting on the hillside, talking to some disciples, overheard by the crowd. He's going to say, listen, you have heard the commandment, you shall not murder, interpreted in a certain way. But let me tell you, the interpretation of what you have heard is too narrow. It's too narrow. And in you making this command too narrow, you have killed the weight of what it should have done. The commandment, you shall not murder, is not just as narrow as don't kill somebody. Jesus is teaching them that the commandment, you shall not murder, is very wide. And in its wideness, it bears a weight on the life of a disciple. Murder is against God's creation and is ultimately against God himself. Murder strikes at the image of God, it is, which is stamped upon man, so it's rightly liable to judgment. Jesus comes along and he's in complete, full agreement with everything that he said. When you read verse 21, there's nothing in verse 21 that smacks of Jesus disapproving of that commandment. He's in complete agreement with it. This is the traditional interpretation of the sixth commandment. And we find Jesus in full agreement with it. Listen, if you murder somebody, you will be brought before men and you will be liable to judgment. 
on an earthly level, you'll be liable to judgment. And in a very real sense, on a divine level, you will be held to judgment because you have taken the life of one of God's creations, someone who has been stamped with the image of God. And the first century Jew who would have been sitting on the hillside looking up, listening to Jesus opening his mouth and teaching would have said this, nailed it. Exactly right. Jesus, you got it. But as you read the Sermon on the Mount, and because we have read the Sermon on the Mount, we know that there's a little bit more to it because there's a nagging question and, and there's this buildup to where if you just would have read Matthew for the first time or if you would have been a first-time listener sitting, sitting and listening to Jesus teaching as he would have been teaching, you sort of get this sense in which there's sort of a pause in the air as Jesus says what he says, yes, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. There's this nagging feeling like, I don't know that he's going to quite stop there. You get the sense that Jesus is going to go on, he's going to crank it up a notch, and that's exactly what he does because this nagging question that's just lingering in the air is this. Is there something more to this commandment than the mere prohibition to the act of murder? Does God want something deeper? Does God want something more than just, hey, don't kill somebody? And Jesus answers with a resounding yes when he turns to verse 22. You see that back half of that formula. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, I've just said a little while ago, but the scribes and Pharisees, what they were doing is they were relaxing God's word to make it achievable. So imagine this. Moses, Ten Commandments, comes down with the law, gives it to, to his people. And they hear this command, you shall not murder. And the theologians of the bunch do what theologians do. They sit around and question and ask questions. So what does that mean? What does that exactly does that look like? How does that work itself out? How does it play itself out? What, what is the broad impact of this idea of you shall not murder? And over the centuries and over time, it got narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow to where it got to the point this, where they said the way that you are perfectly obedient to the command you shall not murder is if you at the end of your life can simply check off the box next to the sentence, have you ever killed anyone? And if you could say, no, never killed anyone, then you have been perfectly and entirely obedient to God in this particular respect. Yet the interpretation, this interpretation of God's commandment severely undercut the intent of God's word whenever he told his people, you shall not murder. See, the command, you shall not murder, it was meant to prohibit murder. But it was also meant to move beyond our external actions and penetrate even down to the very thoughts of our hearts and the words of our mouths. At the heart level, the command, you shall not murder, is meant to even address our emotions and it's meant to address even our speech. And you see this in verse 22. When Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, what Jesus is doing, he's just poking right into the realm of your emotions. Anger is an emotion. What Jesus is doing is he's just walked right through the door of you shall not murder, and he says this, there is a way in which that this commandment, you shall not murder, is supposed to even affect the emotions of the heart, how you relate to other people in the realm of feelings. 
See, the Bible does make the distinction between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. So, so you read this and go, okay, I, I see what Jesus says. Even everyone who is angry with his brother will be, will be liable to judgment. It's like, I mean, is that every, every sort of anger? I mean, because you go and you read in the New Testament, Jesus gets angry at the people who are making the, the, the temple a house of commerce. Jesus is making whips. He's flipping tables. He's, he's shooing people out. Jesus is getting angry at the foolishness and the sinfulness of the hearts of those people he's teaching because their sin-filled hearts are drawing them away from God, and he's getting angry at the sin. So there is a sense in which there is a righteous form of anger. When the goodness of God is being debunked, when the goodness of God is being cut down, the Bible has a category for righteous anger, but oftentimes we operate with unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger looks like this, pride, the anger of vanity, hatred, just that bitter vitriol that comes up, malice, our desire to cut people down, revenge. You offended me, you better believe I'm going to get you back. See, at the heart of righteous anger is this, God has been offended and I'm zealous for the glory and honor of God and so I'm going to be righteously angry at this thing which is stealing the glory of God. Unrighteous anger has this at its heart, you've offended me. You've struck at my glory. You've cut down my namesake. How dare you do that to me? And then we rise up in anger, and that plays itself out in every realm imaginable. In the workplace, in the home, between husbands and wives, between siblings, between mom and dads and children, in every way that you can possibly imagine, the sin of anger that boils so deep inside of us has at its very root this desire to say, you have offended me. How dare you offend me? I will get you back. Jesus says this is a no-go for those who are in the kingdom. Second thing he says is that He addresses our speech. So not only is everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, but whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus gives two more examples, but he moves now to the realm of speech. So anger has been so boiling, so smoldering in your heart. What it's done is it's, it's starting to rumble up, and now no longer is the anger just contained in the realm of the heart, but what it's doing is it's now bursting its way up your throat and out your mouth, and now what you're starting to do is with anger fueled words, you are starting to cut people down at two different levels. You're now starting to insult people. And that word there when it says whoever insults his brother will be liable to to the council, that idea behind that word insults is this. It's the word that says rakah. It's this idea that you're seeking to insult the mind or the intelligence of someone. So you're looking at someone and with every fiber of your being, you believe this, you look at the person, you're like, that guy is a stupid idiot. Stupid. He's so dumb. He's so below me. The guy is an idiot. He does not know what he's doing. And when you're doing this, it's not comical, it's not play. There's something truly being born out in your heart where you're looking at this person and what you're doing is going, I am so up here and in the realm of the mind and intelligence, this person is so down here and what you do is because you're so angry over some offense that's come its way or because this person could just not see, how could this person not see how they have offended me? What you start doing is with your words, fueled by anger, 
cutting this person down, attacking them at the level of the mind, attacking them at the level of their intelligence. Jesus goes on, gives a third example. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I mean, what is that all about? Like, all you have to do is say the words, you fool, and all of a sudden, like, you're worthy of the hell of fire. Like, Mr. T's in a bad, a bad, pretty bad place, right? If this is the, you know, I pity the fool, like, oh, crap, you know, I mean, come on, Mr. T, you shouldn't be saying those kinds of, I mean, is, it, is that, that's what it's about? Just saying the word fool? No. The idea behind the phraseology that gives us you fool is the person who is so consumed with anger that it's no longer satisfactory just to, to look at somebody and cut them down at the level of the mind or the level of the intelligence, but you move down to the heart and the character. What your desire is to do is to assassinate their character with your words. The guy's a scoundrel. This person is worthless. This person is absolutely good for nothing. This person is a waste of space. And you believe it. Like as adults, we don't often think of it this way. But I remember grade school stuff, right? This kind of stuff comes around all the time where like there are people who are so consumed with this way of thinking. like they, It's childish, but the hard attitude is this. You're just a waste of space. Be better if your mom and dad would have never have had you. You bear no worth. You have no value. Why are you even here? Why don't you go kill yourself? And what it is is anger fueled by such hatred for this person that it actually brings language up out of your mouth where you begin to destroy them and murder their character and murder the heart of who they are. And see, what Jesus does when he comes and says the true interpretation of the command, you shall not murder brother and sister, fellow disciple, follower of Christ, it is not enough to never commit the act of murder, yet smolder with anger in your heart and turn and insult people with your speech. Jesus says, if you have smoldering anger in your heart toward a brother, you will be held liable to the judgment of God. There seems to be a progression here. Jesus says this, you shall not murder. If you murder somebody, you're going to be held liable to judgment. And there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, listen, listen. If you go to High V this afternoon and you stab somebody and kill them and you get caught on tape, it is good and right for you to be put in jail. There's going to be an earthly judgment that's going to come your way if you kill somebody. Obvious. It's good and right for that to happen. But then Jesus seems to ramp up some sort of slow progression where he says this, but it's not just enough to never murder somebody, but even if you are angry with a brother in your heart, you will be liable to judgment. And the sense is this, is that you will be liable not only to earthly judgment, because I mean, how can you like bring somebody in the court of law for an angry heart? Like there's no law on the books against that, but what it is, it's you're going to be held liable to a divine judgment. If, if smoldering anger leads you to insulting speech, 
that attacks the mind and intelligence of a brother, Jesus says, you will be held liable before the council, before the court. So what this looks like in Jesus' day is this. Like, listen, if you're just so smoldering, white-hot angry at a brother, at a neighbor, at a relative, at a friend, at, at someone who is near and dear to you, to the point where you just go around cutting them down and belittling and belittling them, in Jesus' day, it's like, listen, you're going to get hauled before the council. You're going to get hauled before the court of the day. We have rules like that in our nation. You just can't go around insulting and cutting people down. There's a sense in which you will be held even liable for that, but then Jesus ratchets it up one more notch where he says, whoever says, you fool. And if the fires of anger so consume your heart that you walk around just cutting people down, attacking the heart and character of a brother, Jesus says, the fires that have fooled your anger will make you answerable to the very fires of hell. That's strong language, in case you haven't picked that up, by the way. And what Jesus is doing is painting a cumulative picture before these disciples saying this. Anger and insult, the heart attitude behind murder, really, really matters. It really matters. For Jesus... To kill with a knife or to engage in character assassination through anger and insults is part and parcel of the same spiritual sickness. Both activities, whether it's killing somebody with the hands or killing somebody with your words, killing somebody with your heart, both of these activities reveal the same animosity of heart towards your neighbors. See, I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus is walking through the door of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, that sixth commandment there. I don't think it's a mistake that he's walking through that door to get to this issue of how disciples deal with anger and insults in regard to their relationships. See, it's important to understand that the sixth commandment deals with the realm of relationship. It's not just a singular thing where God goes... Man, I'm creating some people around here. And, uh, man, the, probably the absolute worst thing that could happen is if, if, if somebody just kills somebody. So I'm just going to make one rule that's going to be so entirely narrow to where they just won't kill somebody. Hey, guys, don't murder. Whew, got that one out of the way. Let's move on down the line. No, there's a very, very broad impact to this. And it stretches to the limits of a world that we call relationship. The sixth commandment deals with the realm of relationship, the way we love, the way we serve, and the way we forgive others. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, think about this. Commandments one, two, and three, they point us toward God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not have any other idols. Those first three commandments, when you grab them together, you put them together, what it is is how you relate to God, how you worship God, how you vertically orient yourself to God. And then when you shift to commandments four through ten, those last seven commandments, what you get is this, how you relate horizontally to a world around you. That's why Jesus, when he's talking to some people, are like, hey, sum up the whole Old Testament for me, would you? And Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And I think what he's doing is this. He's going back to at least the Ten Commandments and saying, when you have the first three commandments right, you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you are rightly oriented to God, when you're operating in this world, when you are living vertically in alignment with the Father in this way, then the result is out of right relationship to the Father, you will then horizontally honor God in your work. You will not murder people. You will not commit adultery. You will not lie. You will not steal. You will not covet. You will not do all these things that damage the world of relationships around you. See, when we have God anchored in his rightful place, he reorients the entirety of our life according to his word and his ways. So instead of murdering by hand and mouth, Jesus calls his kingdom to citizens to to seek with all our might to have right relationships with all of our brothers and even our enemies. See, see what Jesus is teaching us is this, is the gospel actually changes our relationships. Like it's not enough to go, Jesus has saved me. But then the entire world of your relationships is just ash and rubble because you harbor anger and insult toward people. There's a disconnect there, and Jesus is not satisfied with that disconnect for his people. Jesus knows the gospel changes our relationships, and this is exactly where Jesus goes as he talks about anger and relationships. So when you shift to verses 23 through 26, he gives two examples. And in these verses, Jesus uses these two examples to point to one main thought, right relationships with others are part of the meaning of the commandment, you shall not murder. You know if you're nailing, you shall not murder, if your life is marked by a healthy, gospel-driven relationships. So when Jesus turns to verses 23 and 24, when he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. What Jesus wants disciples to know is this, that disciples reconcile murderous attitudes with their friends. Disciples reconcile relationships with their friends. There is a necessity to reconciliation here. Jesus is going to start talking about reconciliation and relationships. And what he's doing here in verses 23 and 24 is this. He's going to paint a picture that reconciliation is a necessary, necessary aspect for disciples of Jesus. So if your brother has something against you, if sin has damaged the relationship to the point that your brother is harboring murderous emotions, angry feelings, murderous speech, insulting language towards you, Jesus doesn't say this, eh, just shrug your shoulders, it's his beef after all anyways, right? I mean, because the language is very specific there. If you there remember that your brother has something against you. See, the tendency for us is to go, ah, man, that's his problem, Right? It's the famous phrase, like, am I, am, I, am I my brother's keeper? Like, why am I supposed to care about this guy's heart over here? But Jesus is saying, no, this brother, this friend, this fellow believer in Christ, if something has come between you to where you're sitting in worship on this Sunday morning and you're singing hallelujah, oh, no. This thought just comes zing right into your mind. That guy is like, very angry with me. Jesus says, it's better for you to shut your mouth and to leave this building 
and to go find that person and to reconcile with that person than it is for you to finish singing the rest of that chorus. That's a high priority placed on reconciliation. According to Jesus, there comes a time when reconciliation even takes precedent precedent over worshiping God himself. Jesus teaches that it is more important to be reconciled to a brother than to go to church since worship becomes a sham if anyone hates his brother and fellow worshiper. So imagine this here. You're sitting here, whether it's you harboring anger and insult towards someone else or someone else is harboring anger and insult towards you, what you're doing is you're falling into the dangerous category the scribes and Pharisees were on the outside. You're standing here. Your arms are lifted up. Man, you're singing it. Austin's nailing it. You're going for it. But on the inside, at the heart level, what's going on? You're harboring anger and insult towards somebody and someone's harboring it towards you. Jesus says your worship is a sham. Because on the outside, you look great. But at the heart level, you're full of death and dead man's bones because you are killing this person with your anger and with your words. Notice that Jesus does not even say that the brother is right to be offended. This is what's so crazy. When it comes here and it says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you are in the midst of worship and they remember that your brother has something against you, there's no qualification Like the guy could have complete justification for being angry with you or he could have completely taken something out of fence against you for no rhyme or reason, but Jesus says it doesn't matter. If you know this to be true, that this person is harboring this sort of heart-level emotion and speech towards you, stop worshiping, go be reconciled. Jesus is calling his disciples to be proactive in reconciliation. Don't hide behind religious duty, somehow believing the excuse that you're too busy worshiping God to reconcile with an offended brother. Right? This is easy to do. I mean, I'm in the midst of worship here. I don't care what that guy's doing. And Jesus is like, listen, don't hide behind religious duty, external action, somehow buying the excuse that, hey, at least I'm worshiping God over here. I know that guy's angry over there or that gal over there is full of insult to me. I mean, that's her beef. That's her problem. That's his deal. Let him deal with it. I'm over here. I'm going to be worshiping God. And God, God, Jesus goes, no, don't, don't hide behind the ruse that you're somehow binding the fact that you're being more holy than that person over there, Jesus says a kingdom citizen doesn't operate that way. He cuts out the religious duty for a moment to go and be reconciled to a brother. Then he comes back and he rightly worships God. Reconcile, then come worship rightly. So this thought came to my mind. Some of us here most likely have unreconciled relationships And I think one of the implications you can draw out of these two verses is this, that unreconciled implications affect your worship. Unreconciled relationships affect your worship. And it could be the reason why your worship feels so dry and empty. Have you been in the dry season for a while? Show up on church just not feeling it? I think what Jesus would say is this. Instead of lifting your eyes so high to heaven where you're worshiping God, going, God, I'm worshiping you, but it's dry. God, I'm worshiping you, but it's empty. I think what Jesus comes to do when he does is this. Then he turns your head to the left, and he turns your head to the right and go, bro, look at you. Your your world of relationships is just ash and rubble. You haven't gone and done what I've asked you to do. You're not reconciling relationships. Your worship to me is a sham because you are loving and harboring disconnection in your relationships. Stop doing it. 
Reconcile, then come and worship. Reconciliation is an act of worship. And then it leads to worship once you've reconciled. But what we think is this. If I just sort of keep punching at worship and keep going at worship, then eventually reconciliation might just sort of happen. But Jesus says, no, do the act of worship in reconciliation, then come back to God and worship God truly, worship him rightly. Insofar as it depends on you, go and be reconciled. Lastly, last two verses, Jesus gives another illustration. He applies what he said back in verses 21 and 22. Disciples reconcile murderous attitudes with their enemies. See, Jesus is going to get on this here later in the book of Matthew, and he's going to, he's going to address this here even later in Matthew chapter 5, like right? Well, it says this in Matthew 5, 43. You've heard of it. It said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That first part, you shall love your neighbor, actual commandment. Then somebody came along and interpreted it wrongly. He's like, okay, so if I have a friend and I'm supposed to love him, but I also equally have an enemy, well, what I'm supposed to do is if I love friend, enemy, oh, I should probably hate him. And Jesus is like, what? There's no commandment to do that. That was an interpretation that they brought out, an implication that they thought was right. And Jesus comes along and goes, no. There's not two distinct categories. You don't relate toward a friend in one way and then relate toward an enemy in one another way. You relate toward a friend and an enemy in the same way, and Jesus is driving at that even here. We are to desire reconciliation in regard to even our enemies, and this is teaching and touching at the urgency of reconciliation. Jesus says we're even to strive to prevent anger and insult consuming the hearts of our enemies. Reconciliation is for your enemies as well. I think what this is doing, and so when you read the Sermon on the Mount, I think I've used this phrase before. It's probably one of the most simplistically complex things you could ever read. Right? Read verses 21 through 26. What's Jesus talking about? Anger? Simple. But there's so many things that Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. I think what he's doing here is this, is that he's making a reference even, even back to those who are blessed or persecuted. So, was, so he's saying this, listen, so... Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with court. So let's just say that you've been living like Jesus, thinking like Jesus. And now people are starting to persecute you because you look like Jesus. And this guy's grabbed you. Now he's hauling you into court. What Jesus is saying is this. Don't don't just assume that's going to go well for you in court. Be one who's so driven by the gospel that you're going to seek reconciliation with this person. Even as as you two are walking up the steps into the courthouse, what you should be doing is driving at reconciling with this person insofar as it is up to you. Your enemy is so spitting angry with you and and they are willing to even assault you And back in verses 10, 11, and 12, some are even willing to murder you because you are a Christ follower. But Jesus says that's why those who are persecuted are blessed. Because there is in this sense that you have an opportunity to be a peacemaker by making peace with this one who is angry at you for looking like Jesus. So reconcile with this one. That's why blessed are the peacemakers, the gospel proclaimers, Be so infused with the aroma of Christ that the one who is angry and insulting you is dragging you into court that you are not so prideful where you're like, man, I'm going to go to court with you and I'm going to make sure I win, but be so humble and low in light of who you are, of your sin, in light of who you are as you relate to Christ that you're seeking to make peace, that you're seeking to point to the gospel. And Jesus says in that way, that's how we become those 
who are light and salt in this world. Jesus is calling us to come to terms with your accuser to seek reconciliation. Anger, insult, murder, relationships, reconciliation. If there's one thing that you need to walk out of here with as you leave this morning, I think it needs to be this. It's impossible to do what Jesus has asked you to do. I mean, am I the only one feeling that? Like, am I the only one going, sweet mercy? I'm going to blow it this afternoon when I haul off and say something dumb to my kids. Like, I can't even go like the rest of the day, and I'm the one stinking preaching the message. Like, this is really impossible, right? No, no person on his own can live up to what Jesus is asking. It's impossible. Or at least it's impossible until you look to Christ. See, see, Jesus in his death is going to know the full extent of all that he has been talking about. When you go to the end of Matthew's book, in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew records Jesus' crucifixion like this. Jesus, or Matthew records, and when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What they're not doing is being honoring there, they're mocking Jesus, they're belittling his character. Then once Jesus was crucified, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by Jesus derided him, insulting him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, you, sir, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? This is language of deriding and wagging heads and mockery so that even the chief priests join in with the scribes and elders mocking him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if God so desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the derision and the mocking and the scandal of the cross even bled itself outward to the two robbers who were crucified with Christ to where Matthew records that those robbers crucified with him also reviled him even as they were suffering the same penalty of death as the Christ himself. See, in Christ's crucifixion, Jesus knew and received the anger of the crowd, and yet Jesus refused to go the way of anger. See, the judgment of God that should have been on the crowd was instead poured out on Jesus. Jesus received the anger-fueled insults of those around him, and yet the council of rulers held him liable and nailed him to the tree, and those who should have been held liable walked away. See, Jesus had his character mocked, and yet it was he who received the hellish fire 
of judgment, the white hot wrath of God that should have been delivered upon the heads of Jesus' murderers was instead poured out on Christ to the fool. But this picture that Matthew paints for us in Matthew chapter 5 of the impossibility of being able to live this way with great hope lifts our head to the end of the gospel of Matthew where we see Jesus doing perfectly exactly everything that he's calling you and I to do. This is the gospel of Christ. It's no mistake that right after that, that Jesus, it's recorded by Matthew, the world goes dark. In the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And crying out again with a loud voice, he then yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top and bottom. See, the judgment of God that should have been mine, the judgment of God that should have been poured out on you but was instead dumped in its fullness on Christ on the cross, it accomplished something. The once dividing wall between God and man has been obliterated and we see that in the picture of that temple curtain being torn in two. That's why Peter can say of Jesus, Jesus committed no sin Neither was deceit found in Jesus' mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So what on earth did Jesus do when people were mocking him and with anger-fueled bitterness murdering him on the cross? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that you and I might die to sin, die to murder, die to anger, die to insults, and live to righteousness. Your and mine sin-sick hearts that are prone to anger, insult, and murder, these wounds have been healed through Jesus Christ. See, the good news for the unbeliever is this. The way you respond is by looking to Jesus Christ and entrusting yourself to God. It is God who judges justly. Your hope of salvation is found in Christ. He bore your sins of murder, anger, and insult in his body on the tree so that your sin-sick wounds can be healed so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. So your response today is this, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Run to Christ. Embrace Christ. Repent of your sins of anger. Repent of the sin of insult. Repent of the sin of murdering people and flee to Christ. For he has taken the full punishment of judgment that should have been you he received on the cross. And for the believer, the response is just the same. You too are to look to Jesus by entrusting yourself to God. You too are to run to him, entrusting yourself to God, asking him for the grace to be able to obey. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to bump into that person who just makes you livid. And what are you going to do in that moment? Rely upon yourself or entrust yourself to Christ? 
who by his grace has equipped you to be able to live in that moment like Christ, speaking a better word for Christ, showing Christ, being salt for Christ, light for Christ in that way. Some of you need reconciliation in your relationships. Some of you need to not worship when the band comes. Some of you need this afternoon to have a serious conversation with some people. Some of you need to ask God to help you feel the necessity and urgency of reconciling. See, some of you are just blind to it, and hopefully God will awaken you up to the need to be reconciled. Some of you know you need reconciliation, but it's that person's fault. And the moment they get their act together and make the first move towards me, then I will be obedient to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't do it. He says, recognize the necessity and the urgency. So some of you need to respond by asking God for you to help you feel the necessity and urgency of reconciling. And then you need to ask God to grant the grace for you to joyfully obey, knowing it'll be the hardest thing you do this week. Some of you need prayer. I'll be in the back. You can come and and pray with me. Some of you just need to stand up and worship rightly, joyfully, honoring Christ for what he's done in your life. And for some of you who are believers this morning, you're going to come and you're going to respond to the Lord's Supper. You're going to come and you're going to outwardly express a good news message by partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper, the broken body seen in the bread, the shed blood of Christ seen in the juice. And what you're going to do as you eat and drink of these elements, what you're going to do is proclaim a message to those around you and proclaim a message to God. Praise be to God that Christ, through his broken body and shed blood, has saved me. Some of you need to respond in this way. So as I pray, I ask you to pray with me. When I get done praying, the band is going to play, and I'm just going to ask you to respond as God is leading you. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you.